Finding Common Ground is a new show on Naperville Community Television focused on important current events and how they impact our diverse population. The first episode that you are about to watch came as a response to incidents of racism against Asian Americans as a result of COVID-19. However, since we taped this show almost two weeks ago, so much has happened. We've witnessed a series of events unfold nationally and locally that need to be acknowledged. On a national level, on May 25th, a white woman walking her unleashed dog calls the police on a black man simply out bird watching in Central Park, New York. On that same day, a white police officer kills George Floyd by kneeling on his neck as his fellow officers watch and the bystanders capture video that show him pleading for his life. I can't breathe. These two incidents set off a series of protests and riots that have rippled across the United States. As the mother of a black son, as the mother of a special needs black son, our society makes me fearful for his life, for his triggers can be unpredictable because he will run when he's afraid, but not because he's defiant. Will he be given the benefit of the doubt or simply judged by the color of his skin? It is my hope that in any moment that matters most to my child's life, the people who can decide whether he lives or dies have compassion, maturity, and love to spare his life. I also pray for others to be a hedge of protection for him, especially his friends who do not look like him. These are the moments that can save lives. That's allyship. And to have to say this is one reason why Black Lives Matter. Locally, rallies in both Naperville and Aurora began peacefully only to devolve into violence and looting, devastating local business districts that have just reopened. In Naperville, after the rioting, a bright spot for the community, coming together with brooms in hand to help local business owners clean up for the, from the previous night's destruction. Real change is not convenient. These events may be recent, but the tools of allyship in the episode you are about to watch are not new. Finding Common Ground is focused on bringing light to the issues that divide us and offering solutions that can unite us. Naperville is full of diverse voices, but also full of the promise that together we can move forward. We can do better. Thank you for joining us for this premiere episode of Finding Common Ground. Joining us for this first segment are Nancy Chen from the advisory board of the Illinois chapter of the United Chinese Americans, Dr. Benny White, Naperville city councilman and founder of Naperville Neighbors United, Siley Joshi, member of Naperville Neighbors United and chair of the Parent Diversity Advisory Council for Naperville District 204, and Juan Kim, PhD, Director of Discipleship from New Community Covenant Church, Bronzeville. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Good. Great. Hi, everyone. Wonderful. Good to see all of you, and we're ready to get started. So let's jump right in. There's a new national spotlight on the U.S. for blaming China for the start of the pandemic. So talk to us a little bit about how you're seeing this in the media right now. 
Um, I may start first. I'm a Chinese American, and this really directly impacts a lot of Chinese Americans. Although, yes, it spilled into Asian Americans being targeted too. But I would have to say that uh, the 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 attack really it, it really isn't about social media or it is about. Uh, our media really perpetuating this. It really starts from the very highest level of our government. You know, the president, some of the senators, they're talking about attacking and blaming China. Uh, sure, you know, the COVID-19 uh, started in China, but they're using this really basically to cover up and to deflect the criticism of their own failure in handling the pandem pandemic here in our country. And uh, so this is the, the kind of egregious thing. And the reason that that uh, we, Asian Americans, particularly Chinese Americans are under attack is because the public cannot distinguish between China, the Chinese mm -hmm. government and Asian Americans. You know, Asian Americans are Americans. We have nothing to do with the start of the COVID. In fact, we are facing the same threat, uh, just like everybody else. We worry about getting sick. I mean, we, we worry about going out. So this, this is the situation that we are in. I agree with Nancy. I think uh, what's different this time around is, is the amount of information on social media um, and how to filter that for the average American who is seeing constant flow of information being pushed out to them. Um, I think we all have to be very responsible um, when we share things. That's first of all, because we're taking an active role in telling who follows us and whatever platform we have um, about information that could or could not be true. And then the, on the other hand, also what we read. Um, you know, we have to make sure that we are reading different sources. Um, we are vetting the sources that we read and, and that we are coming down to the truth of, of what um, really is happening. Um, with social media on for children, um, they can get swayed very easily um, for young adults as well. And, and so I think we have to be very vigilant of what's being put out there and actively correct it when we see something that is um, not posted correctly. What are some of the types of things you are seeing in social media um, or locally or nationally when it comes to some of these attacks? I can chime in there. I'll say probably the most visceral and disturbing example I saw, and this was pretty early on uh, when the pandemic was spreading, was the news. And I'm guessing most of you saw this. Um, I saw it on Twitter, actually, was uh, I believe it was in Brooklyn. There was a woman mm -hmm. who was just outside on her, just on her front step, and there was acid thrown on her. Um, just unbelievable. I mean, if you can't even imagine just the level of hate that's involved with something like that. And as Nancy and, and Siley have, have said, I mean, this goes way beyond, you know, it's not a simple act of racism. This is, this is really an intentional yeah. kind of push down from the highest levels. Right. And it's a politicized thing and it's really just a scapegoat. It's attacks for really senseless attacks. Um, but that's really the example that stands out to me. I, I've certainly seen, and some of my friends have reported um, attacks either toward them or their friends or their family members, not, not to that degree, but just 
totally out of the blue, right? They're out for a jog, they're walking around and just people yelling racial slurs at them, tell them to go back to China. I, someone told me they yelled, they yelled coronavirus at them, which mm -hmm. is a very bizarre thing to do. So it's just kind of, you know, kind of seeing it from, from people I, I, I know as well as again on social media. So I think it's good and bad, right? The social media piece, as Ali was mentioning, it's, it has to be filtered responsibly, but at the same time, it can be a powerful tool to, to, to share what's going on out there that some people just might be completely unaware of, especially if they live in areas where there just aren't any Asians or Asian Americans around them. So it's a powerful way to, to spread that news because it's important for people to know it really has to be managed. Uh, you're absolutely right. As you read through the social media and you see what people are saying, it, it, you, you, you guys had mentioned that you have to filter what's right, what's not, what seems to be more politicized and what's coming from a, a, an, an agency or someone who's more neutral. neutral. And uh, to me, that, that tends to be more of our scientists who uh, more or less don't have a dog in the fight. Um, more or less, and it's just it's just horrible. It, it's um, well, that's kind of where I am. I think get, get rid of the politicizing what's going on, and just give us uh, uh, the real picture, and then go from there. Can you talk about the incident that happened here locally in Naperville with the jogger? Well, the uh, jogger, I didn't find out until uh, that there was an article in the newspaper, uh, uh, Naperville Sun and uh, NPR reporting it and I was outraged because by then we were all Chinese. I know my friends, Chinese American friends, the Chinese community, we've already been reporting about incidents, racial incidents across the country. And here, you know, I really didn't think, didn't think that it would happen in Naperville. You know, it just seems to be a very safe place. So I was outraged and we started really looking around, but there wasn't a whole lot of information, but it seemed like it was a typical racial attack, just like uh, uh, that, what happened, incidents happened throughout the country. Somebody um, spit at, at, at the victim, somebody yelled, going back to China. And this one happens to have all three, physical attack, a stick was thrown uh, to the victim, and uh, he was yelled at to go back to China, and he was he was also spat on. Um, so yes, it was very disturbing. So also recently, um, there was a letter that was submitted to the Naperville City Council during a discussion about cannabis sales, and it's an example of how we're seeing just an anti-Asian rhetoric coming up in other issues within our community. So um, I'd like to read just a small portion of this letter to you all and to our viewers. Um, I'm gonna quote this. The Asian, mainly Chinese opposition group, Opt Out, is funded by dark money, is full of roving carpetbaggers, and their unscientific views certainly don't represent Naperville or the Asian American community here. Many Opt Out members aren't even American citizens or voters. Do I have the right to go to China and randomly demand that the Chinese abstain from alcohol, green tea, and rice simply because I showed up? We will not be silenced or bullied by carpetbaggers funded by nefarious dark money packs. I will never apologize for believing in freedom, personal choice, and traditional American values. So, you know, share with us some of the language that you're hearing and, and your response to uh, to 
to how they're they're portraying Asian Americans in this letter? Well, if it wasn't so outrageous, I almost felt the first day it was almost comical. I mean, this person first was ranting on people that I later found out that she wasn't a resident of Naperville. And here she was challenging, actually, the Chinese-American Naperville citizens who actually basically was exercising their constitutional right to petition the government. They happened to be on the opposite opposite side of what she believed in, in, in terms of sales of marijuana. But the, the thing about talking about going to China to tell people, it, see, this is basically, this is what I wanted to stress here. And, and, and I know my colleagues here agree is that we are seen as foreigners. She doesn't think, believe that we are American citizens. And, and she certainly wouldn't be able to go to China and, and to, to tell the Chinese what to do unless she's a Chinese citizen, right? And so, so everything that she said was actually on the verge of ridiculous. And you didn't recite her final uh, comment was that she was born in America. She went to school in, uh, in Naperville and she graduated from Naperville High School. You know, my daughter did the same. So were many people here, you know, our second generations. And so basically it is still that she doesn't see Asian Americans, Chinese Americans as citizens. And she felt that she was a lot more privileged than these other people, the people who, who, who went to city council to speak up and accuse them of dark money and all the kind of things that really are not true. And that's the xenophobia, right? The fear of people from other countries, um, even when they are American citizens, right? They just might be a minority, but there's a there's a a tendency to associate them with being foreigners or perpetual foreigners, right? Go back to yeah. China, go back to Africa, go back to Mexico. Um, how is the xenophobia the same or different from racism? I can I can comment on that briefly. Um, I would say, you know, as you mentioned, xenophobia is is a fear of people from other countries. So I guess it's like a particular type of racism in a way. Um, and and just as it pertains to Asian Americans in in particular, uh, I really agree with what Nancy said because it there's an assumption of otherness, right? There's an assumption of foreignness. And frankly, in, in some ways, I, I wonder if even labeling it xenophobia actually accidentally furthers the othering because if there's an attack on Asian Americans, and I'm, you know, I'm Korean American, I was born here, I was raised here, but almost any time I meet someone, and, and frankly, this happens probably more with white people than with um, folks of other races, but they always ask, you know, where are you from? And so I'll mm -hmm. answer, yeah, I, I grew up in Chicago. They're like, no, uh, no. Like, no, 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 where, where are you really, where are you really from? And I'm like, well, I would never, I would never ask someone that question. Okay. I, mm -hmm. like it, it, so there's an assumption that, oh, well, you're not, you, you clearly aren't from here. So where are you really from? And, and by and large, it's an innocent question, but it, it, it sort of reveals what the assumptions are, right? And you know, it's it's funny because there's a tendency for us to sort of internalize that too as Asian Americans, or I'll speak for myself. Um, and I won't get into that because I feel like that's probably <laughs> a rabbit trail. But I, I I do think xenophobia 
is a is is an expression of racism, but I, I almost again it, it feels like it's misused in these cases because a lot of the attacks have been on Asian Americans, right? And and so it's just out and out racism is what we're seeing, less than xenophobia. I agree with Juan. I, I would just call it racism. Um, you know, just call it what it is. Um, there can be a category, I guess, if you have to categorize racism, but we have to be able to say that difficult word um, and not soften it um, by calling it something else. Um, what stuck out in that statement, Rebecca, that you read was the traditional values. What does that mean? Um, you know, are we talking about the good old days? Um, and whose good old days are we talking about? Is it the, the white Caucasian majority that was, um, and I would even say white Caucasian male majority for much of the early development of this country, um, where that is the basis of what we call as traditional values? Is it, um, you know, going back, we hear this all the time in, in the schools, like, you know, parents will come and say, we want school to be how we experienced it. And, um, you know, and that's what sometimes 20, 30, 40 years later and our country, uh, definitely our state and our city have changed in 40 years. So how do we um, bring um, the good old days to the present and saying they're still good days. They look different. Um, we've grown, uh, we have changed, and we need to incorporate and include everyone in it and have a new good old days. I was going to say, Juan, you were talking about um, the, you know, this idea of uh, language and just calling it, calling it what it is, calling it racism. Um, and I th I'm thinking about what you said about somebody asking you where you're from. Mm -hmm. And you being on the receiving end of that are questioning, okay, what are their intentions with that question? What are they trying to get at? And like you said, I, I, you're really hoping that and believing that the person has the best of intentions, but how do we start to dismantle that idea that that question uh, for some is, is, is a racist question because next, right, from that question comes stereotypes, assumptions. So how do we begin that process of dismantling um, something as simple as a question like, where are you from? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I, there's nothing wrong with curiosity. So I, I, I feel like I should say that, right? Like there's, but I would say maybe put yourself in, in my shoes, right? I feel like that's kind of the first step. I feel like there's often a lack of self-awareness in somebody who's asking that question that they don't realize how they're coming off. Because often that question's followed by, if I tell them I'm Korean, they'll say something in Korean to me, typically very poorly, which is fine. My Korean's not the best either. But there is this, I mean, how am I supposed to feel about it other than to feel alienated by that? And so I would just say empathy is, and I know that's a big ask sometimes, but empathy is a big part of it is just recognizing, you know what, I probably wouldn't want someone probing into my background when I just met you. Right. Can't we just, you know, treat me like you would somebody who, who didn't, I wouldn't say it doesn't look like me because obviously that's important, but why do you assume that just because I look the way I do that I couldn't have grown up next door to you, right? And so just... 
Yeah, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I really feel like it's the lack of self-awareness there that's just like gives you the gall to be able to ask a question like that. And I think you are. I think you are. Um, you're talking about racism and I think you're talking about privilege. And I think both of those are very charged words. No one wants to be a racist. Uh, people who have privilege feel like that can be an attack on them. Like, I don't like life is hard for me. I don't I have problems, too. Um and, and, and that's true, right? I mean, everybody who has a privilege in some way still has hardship, right? There's gender privilege, there's racial privilege, there's um, ethnic privilege, there's um, all different types. Um, but for many people, it's that self-awareness piece, Juan, that you talked about, um, where people aren't self-aware. And so they don't know that, that they're making a comment that is racist or insensitive, and even if questioned about it, even if called on the mat on it, like, I'm not, I'm not a racist. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Right. It's kind of like bad driving. People don't think they're bad drivers. People don't think they're racist. Can you be a racist without knowing you're a racist? Oh, well, I, I wanted to go back to what Wang said. Uh, I agree with him, but often you know, we're very polite. So when people, and of course, I've experienced the same thing, you know, they ask it. And even when I say I'm from Chicago area, suburb of Chicago, they would say, but where are you from originally? Mm -hmm. And most of these people, either they're nice ladies, you know, or somebody I know they don't mean any, I don't think they have any bad intention of asking. And certainly they didn't realize that this is kind of a, a question, inappropriate question. So actually, I would like to see what would be a good comeback because after you even tell them, oh, I'm from Naperville, they still wanted to know where are you really from? And sometimes the follow-up would be, oh, we were just in China. You know, have you been there or something? You know, I mean, if they're trying to make connections. So almost there are times you you feel that you don't want to make them feel bad that, that this is offensive. And, and I just want to add also, I think only Asians Asian American experience this question. I don't think that I, I, I would have to ask a Benny, have you ever been asked where are you from? Or, you know, a, a Latino, Latina, or if they ever been asked, but I know Asians, this is our lament, you know, I mean, we, we're always being asked, uh, you know, by strangers. And, and like I said, a lot of time they don't seem to mean bad, so you can't really, you know, snap at them or, or say something. So I would love to, to say what would be an effective come back, you know, for, for a situation like that. Well, I was just going to add, and a lot of this comes with just educating uh, each other. And, and that's what, you know, it's one of the things we do with Naperville Neighbors United. You get a chance to educate each other. And, and, and like you all were saying, uh, people may be doing that, not even realizing that they're being offensive when they're doing it. Uh, but when we can get in a room and we can talk about it and you'll go, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. Uh, I recall we had a couple of sessions on uh, implicit bias, which mm -hmm. I know you're going to talk about later on in the program, but a lot of that, the same principles apply. And, and once you learn about some of your own biases, um, I think you can make the improvement that you're talking about. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Benny. I was just um, going to say that, that um, I think as Nancy and Juan pointed out, I think context matters as well. Um, when are you asking that question? Um, you know, do you know the person? Have you given them a chance to know them as a human being, as, as a friend? 
Um, and then you can delve deeper into these more personal questions. Um, for my Caucasian friends, I don't assume they're from Germany or Ireland or um, you know Switzerland or anything like that. I just get to know them. Um, and then as we develop a friendship, develop a sense of trust, then I find out more about their family. Um, so I think we have to realize that, that just because uh, visually our face may look different, that doesn't give them permission um, to go to that question as, as the first question to get to know someone. I'm hearing words of trust, building empathy, um, rapport with others. And I think that those are all very helpful tools um, for, for kind of navigating, uh, meeting new people, encountering people, um, and just the way we move about. So I want to thank you all for joining us. We appreciate you being here on our show, Finding Common Ground. We're, we'll be right back with more. Welcome back to Finding Common Ground. In this segment, we're gonna be talking about the psychology of racism. Joining us for this segment are Dr. Stephen Maynard Caliendo, Dean of Arts and Sciences and Professor of Political Science at North Central College and co-director of the Project on Race in Political Communication. Professor Randolph Stone, retired clinical professor of law from the University of Chicago and a former public defender. Juan Kim, PhD, Director of Discipleship, New Community Covenant Church, Bronzeville, and Janai Givings-Bailey, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer from Perkins Coie. How y'all doing? Great. Well, doing well. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, in our last segment, we just started to touch on unconscious or implicit bias. And so we want to start this segment with a better understanding of what we mean when we say implicit or unconscious bias? Well, I can start. I mean, I think what it's important to understand is, um, you know, there's a lot that's going on in our brain at any given moment, and we're only aware of a very small fraction of it. And uh, so when we talk about uh, pre-conscious or unconscious or non-conscious ideas or thoughts, uh, it's really about the associations that we have uh, and connections in our brain um, that are outside of our awareness at any given moment. And uh, particularly with respect to, to prejudice, uh, and in this case, we're talking specifically about race and ethnicity, um, these have an ability to surface, uh, to affect our behaviors, even outside of our consciousness. And I think um, those are the kind of things that, that, that can get really sticky and, and are difficult for people to talk about, which is, I think, why we're doing it today. And if I could add to that, I think an important thing to know about unconscious or implicit bias is how quickly our brains are doing it. It's called unconscious and implicit for a reason, because we don't even know that it's happening. And in fact, the brain in under one second, the brain is making decisions about uh, a person's race, their age, their ethnicity, and their gender literally in under one second and deciding if this is someone that they're going to trust, someone that they're going to like, or not. So basically someone who's going to be in their in-group or in their out-group. So the connection between bias and racism, can we talk about that? Well, one, one aspect that often comes up is this connection between um, un so-called unconscious bias and structural or systemic racism, where you have structures or systems 
that perpetrate uh, inequitable outcomes, not because there's someone there who is being a racist, but because of historical and cultural assumptions that have been made and have built into systems and structures. So an example is, you know, recent studies showing bias throughout the medical system where uh, doctors uh, who are not necessarily trying to be racist, but make assumptions. And so that's one connection between the so-called unconscious racism and structural or systemic racism. Yeah, on a, on a personal level, I would note that any implicit biases that I hold without recognizing them in particular, so if those remain implicit and never become conscious to me, then they will inform my opinions, my actions toward people who look in a variety of different ways. And I think the key is the essentially the prejudice, the racism will continue until the implicit biases that we hold are unearthed and worked through and frankly apologized for and fixed, which takes a long time certainly. But if, if those things aren't identified, if we don't have sort of the courage, I guess, or even maybe people around us who have the courage to tell us and call us out on those things, then we'll probably never change because they're so baked into us, as Professor Stone was saying, through society, through culture, through the ways we were raised. We're not even aware of it. We're not thinking about it. And that's what's so dangerous about it is because it's it's a reflexive thing, right? Like Janai said, it's it's we snap decisions. And until we can reprogram ourselves essentially or reprogram our brains to recognize wait this is not right this is not good this is not how i want to behave toward this person until we rehabituate ourselves it really won't change could you could, could you talk a little bit about um like confirmation bias um specifically maybe in the media and things that that we see that then reinforce some of that unconscious bias that we have I'll take a stab at that, Rebecca. Um, so there are different types of, uh, of biases, right? And confirmation is, is one of, of many. And basically what's happening with confirmation bias is that we are looking for patterns or behaviors or ways of being that confirm what we think we know about a particular individual or a particular group of people. Um, and sadly, oftentimes what we think we know is actually incorrect, or it certainly is not the whole story at the very least, right? And, um, and so the challenge there is if you have a particular uh, um, thought or belief about a group of people, and then you see someone who behaves even similar to that belief that you have, it confirms what you already know. And if you have this prejudice or this bias against a group of people, let's say black people, for instance, then you're actually actively subconsciously going out into the world, looking for people who are going to confirm, looking for black people to confirm this behavior that you think that you know about them, even if they aren't doing it. And it's one of the problems with, um, it's one of the things that actually frustrates our efforts to try and correct for this kind of behavior and to try and dismantle systems of racism. Because as you can see, that sort of confirmation bias just continues to reinforce institutionalized and individual racism. When we're trying to dismantle the racism, 
Um, can you talk a little bit about what things such as fear, blame, and control, how do those, what, what roles do those play in, in the racism analysis? And, and then we'll, we'll talk later about dismantling that. Issues such as fear in particular um, just sort of cement these racist uh, thoughts and behaviors that we have because we, again, it, it, it sort of feeds directly into the confirmation bias piece, right? So a part of, of understanding or having this bias um, often incites fear of the other in us, right? And so I mentioned earlier in groups and out groups. And so what our brain is doing is quickly sorting all of this information poorly, by the way, in many instances, but sorting all this information and making these decisions um, that are based in, in, in fear. And in fact, it's actually based in uh, uh, very primitive sort of flight or fight kinds of behaviors, right? So we're like, okay, is this a situation where I have to get ready to fight and protect myself and, and others who are like me? Um, do I have to run at this point? What do I have to do to protect myself? And it, it's very much a fear-based um, uh, uh, response that, that we have. Can I add to, to that on the fear question? Because I think um, that's the most important part that, that um, what was just described about fear. I think there's another level of fear though in that, that's relevant to this conversation, and that is fear of being labeled racist. And so I think if we get to the point where we want to do the work that Juan suggests and, and, and sort of reprogram our brains, that requires some acknowledgement uh, that there are racist sentiments uh, in our brains and that we've been socialized to understand those. And there's so much fear of being labeled that because we, we mostly, most of us, overwhelmingly believe that it's wrong uh, to be racially prejudiced. And so we, not only do we strive not to do it, uh, but we, we really, um, um, uh, we, we lock our elbows when we're accused of it and, and are very defensive about it. And so that fear, I think, also translates into a lack of, of willingness to do the hard work that's necessary to get us to the next step. Yeah, and Stephen, and I would, I would even add, uh, that's a really great point, and I would add that that, um, that fear is steeped in uh, how we have been raised and the messages that we have received, right, about the things that we can and cannot talk to, what's polite, especially in Western culture and, sp and specifically in U.S. culture, um, what is uh, polite conversation and what isn't polite conversation. And historically, talking about race was not considered polite conversation, right? In fact, we were taught to be colorblind and to not see racial and ethnic differences. Um, but you're absolutely right that 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 contributes to instilling fear about even doing the work and starting to unpack uh, the, these aspects of, of racism and, and what it means to to have racist behaviors without even necessarily being conscious of it. I love that. And so and, and if I can just add, that that as this there's this weird Orwellian dynamic that it's those who point out racism who they're the actual racists. Right. If something <laughs> happens that you're not talking explicitly about race and somebody says, hey, I, that's racist. Well, you're the one who brought up race. Now, now all of a sudden you're the one who's racist because you're not supposed to be talking about this. So it's like the world's completely right. upside down in those moments. And it's impossible to win. I mean, we're in a rhetorical, uh, we're in a rhetorical jujitsu uh, that's the difficult to get out of. Yeah. Yes. Somewhat related to that are people who um, proclaim I'm not a racist. Uh, when they're confronted with their own racism, uh, you know, or even our leaders who sometimes proclaim that they don't have a racist bone in their body. 
And uh, it's related to this idea of not wanting to be called a racist, but it's also related to the idea of what's the definition of a racist. And we go back to throughout history. I mean, you had slave owners on plantations who would proclaim that they weren't racist. Um, and the idea that, you know, somewhat it's not acceptable to be called a racist, but the idea is what are your actions and what are your ideas and how do we, as uh, Kim pointed out, how do we uh, raise those issues? How do we work on those issues? How do we get those issues out so that we can kind of purge people of those ideas? You know, a, a theme that I'm picking up on here as we're talking is this idea of denial. So there's a denial on an individual level where I think I'm not racist. I couldn't be, and I wouldn't, I couldn't live with myself if I was. But also on this sort of, I would say, national level of denial of the history of this country, right? So as, as Professor Stone is alluding to, you know, if, if you're someone who, who thinks that, well, slavery was in the past, it doesn't have an impact on us now, or you don't see the connection between slavery and lynching or how lynching is still happening, then of course you're going to, like we, we've programmed our minds to believe that, well, no, that that's in the past. That doesn't affect me. And then I think when you mix that with this American idea of individualism, that I am my own person and that I'm not necessarily, you know, I, I can have individual thought that exists somehow outside of my influences, I feel like these things work in concert to just create barriers and barriers of denial. And so when somebody is confronted with a, an instance in which they might be racist, there's all these defense mechanisms that fire up, right? So as Janai was saying, there's this fight or flight and our, our instincts have been basically honed over time to say, no, that's not me. And, and like Steven said, it's, well, no, you're the racist. Why would you bring that up? How could you even say that? Right. And so we, we've just built up so much denial that <laughs> to be confronted with your own prejudice feels completely, it, it just feels like you're falling apart a lot of times. Right. And I would say this is probably particularly true of the more privilege you have. So if you're a white male, then it's even harder to break it down because you've been told your whole life essentially that this is not a problem for you. This is not a thing. You, it's their own fault. Right. And when you're confronted with evidence that that's not true, it's really, really difficult to to break those things down without feeling like your own identity is being threatened. It's easy to fall into the trap of denial when you don't have the tools or the resources to be an ally, because it's it's that that form of denial is it's, sometimes it's a I don't know how to be an ally. I don't know what to do. Um, so I'd rather just have the deniability of, of not, of not being a racist, um, or being offended, you know, at the notion or the thought of it. What is the role of allyship when it comes to, to confronting racism? Um, because a lot of times silence, um, is, is part of the problem, not speaking up, not saying something. So let's, let's help people be better allies and not be cornered into a, a position of denial. Um, let's empower folks. So, so can we give some, some thoughts or some advice about the tangible steps that we can give others to be allies? We started to talk about some of this critical thinking in the first segment, but I would love to continue that discussion. 
Well, I'll, yes. I'll start off by saying that um, one of the things that I've learned, and that I'm embarrassed to say I learned it late, uh, is this idea of intersectionality. Uh, the idea that, um, you know, if there's racism re related to Asians, uh, it, it's related to me as well. Uh, if there are problems or discrimination as it relates to gay people, it has an impact on me as a black person and I need to step up on those levels. You know, if women are being discriminated against, uh, it affects me uh, as well. And that's, you know, a, a concept that I, I have to admit, it took me a while to get to, um, but I think if more people can figure out how to accept that idea of inter intersectionality and how um, and, and move forward, that's one way, I think, of being um, an ally. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And um, Dana, as you know, this this topic of allyship is one of my favorites right now. Um, for lots of reasons, but I think most importantly because it, it's it's um, it's an actionable tool in the toolkit that we or in the toolbox that we have to think about how we can dismantle systems that are racist um, and how we can learn more about our own. Uh, behaviors um, and our own unconscious biases and understand better um, how we may be contributing uh, uh, subconsciously and, and inadvertently, but how we may be contributing to systems of racism, right? I, I have a, the, the, I'm of the belief that unless you are actively anti-racist, um, you are complicit with systems of racism, right? And especially if you're benefiting from you know, the, 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 the way our society is currently structured and the way many of our workplaces are structured. So we have to be actively anti-racist. And I think this concept of allyship um, certainly isn't the only one, only way, but it is a way to help us move in that direction. Um, and, and so, you know, there are several steps to becoming uh, uh, a, a more effective ally. The first one is to do your own self-learning, to understand where your unconscious biases lie, to understand where your blind spots may be. Uh, and as you do that work, you start to understand, oh, I didn't know I had a bias against you know, black people, or I didn't realize that I felt this way about transgender individuals, right? And so you can start to unpack some of that stuff um, and, and become a more effective ally that way. There are many other steps as well, um, including uh, understanding systems um, and concepts of equity uh, and inequity. Um, also, uh, um, learning how to stand up for and, and next to uh, individuals who may be marginalized or underrepresented. Um, so many steps, but it all starts with, with some of that self-learning uh, and, and understanding where your own biases uh, may lie. I have two follow-up thoughts on that. Um, one is I, I completely, completely agree. The self-learning is so important. And I, I think sometimes some people may default to, well, that means I need to befriend somebody of, you know, X race or more women or whatever the case may be. And uh, it may not be a bad impulse, but I think often that puts the onus on that marginalized person to share their pain, to share their story, which has probably happened repeatedly for that person in their life. So I would say instead of doing that as a first step, 
yeah, I think definitely taking implicit bias tests. And also at this point, there's so much content out there. There's books, there's documentaries, there's, there's all sorts of things. There's videos that you can watch to learn about history, to learn about how and why, you know, systems of inequity exist as they do, because these things go back. They're not, it wasn't like they were developed yesterday. These go back to the founding of the country. And until, you know, instead of putting the onus on someone else to teach you, like Janai said, take that responsibility on yourself. Because I think oftentimes sort of like another it's additional victimization of people of color when you start asking them to teach you, right? And then are probably met with resistance and they're opening themselves up to, you know, it's just, it's, it's just horrible to, to kind of re, re, you know, reinstitute the pain. So I, I could not stress enough. And this is what I tell people is you've got to do your own homework. Like, just like Janai said, and there's no excuse at this point. There's so much good stuff out there. Really no excuse. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, I, I put that into my category of uh, pitfalls to avoid one, um, you know, making the other person do the teaching, right? Um, you really do have to own your own learning for sure. And I think on a related note, um, I would say that when you open yourself up and you start to do the learning, however you do it, so taking the implicit association test online is a great place to start. Um, that's just a place to start. And then there's so much, there's, there's no excuse really for, for not learning today because there's just so much content out there. Um, and, and to the extent that you do engage with individuals and you want to hear their stories and, you know, you go to their protests or you join their resource groups or affinity groups or as an ally, um, all of those kinds of things, as you start to hear people's stories um, and they start to share their experiences with you, especially on the issue of race and racism, um, I always encourage uh, would-be allies to listen, to lean in and to listen and talk less, listen more. And don't challenge what you're hearing because you're gonna hear some stuff that you've never heard before. And some of it may sound unbelievable, right? Or, or um, things that you, that, that, that really make you wonder, you know, could that really be someone's experience? Um, and I always encourage people to, to listen and, and to accept those experiences for what they are. Don't challenge them. Um, don't say, you know, you always make that about race. It's not really a black thing, you know, all of this stuff. It's like, if that person says it's a black thing, it's a black thing, right? <laughs> so um, you have to trust uh, the people that you oh, are, uh, that you are engaging with and, that, and who you are learning from. I want to thank you all so much for being with us to uh, share your experiences, share your expertise with the ultimate goal of helping to educate all of us, our viewers. And I think some of these takeaways um, and these items in the toolkit of allyship are going to have a big impact. Um, we need to hear these authentic voices. We need to hear how we can avoid some of the pitfalls of trying to be an anti-racist and trying to be an ally. Uh, and what I heard really was that starts with a journey of self-discovery and that you really need to put the onus on yourself. Um, there's so many resources, right, that are available. Um, and we appreciate you sharing that with us and sharing that with our viewers. Um, so thank you so much. 
for, for being here with us today. And we'll be right back with more Finding Common Ground. Finding Common Ground. We are now going to have a discussion about diversity and inclusion. I'd like to welcome all of our guests. Rakita Leakes, Executive Director, Diversity and Inclusion at Naperville Community School District 203. Jennifer Rowe, Executive Director for Educational Equity at Indian Prairie School District 204. And Corey Carew, Chief Inclusion and Diversity Officer at Cypher Shaw. Thank you so much. How are you guys all doing today? Doing well. Doing well. So, what do we mean when we say diversity and inclusion? That's a great question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, I think of when we're talking about diversity, um, it's all the things that make us who we are. Sometimes we naturally go to uh, looking at race, but it's so much more than that. Um, So, I always think about what makes us unique and individual. And it's not just the things that we can see on the outside, but it's also what's important to who we are on the inside. I agree. I agree that diversity is about the array of uh, things that make us make up who we are, um, our backgrounds, our life experiences, race, ethnicity, languages spoken, immigrant status. You can go on and on and on um, as far as defining diversity. And inclusion is a step beyond diversity. It's about how people feel um, in, a, in a space or a setting, if they feel included, if they feel uh, like they have a sense of belonging, if they feel welcomed. And so that's what inclusion is. Yeah. You know, when I think about inclusion, one of the things I've started doing is framing it around the concept of belonging. Because when I thought about times where I felt like I was included versus times where I didn't, it all centered around belonging. And for so many of our conversations around inclusion and diversity, you know, we talk about diversity in terms of the differences in in background or demographics or experiences like you guys talked about. And then we talk about inclusion as if when we have inclusion, all these people will be leveraged and their talents will be leveraged. But the truth is, you know, when we have that genuine inclusion, people feel like they belong. And it was that sense of belonging that caused me to begin to think of inclusion that way. And I love the definitions that that you guys you guys gave. Um, so that's the only thing I would add. In the last segment, we talked um, a lot about allyship and the important role that plays in uh, a movement towards anti-racism. Um, so maybe talk to us a little bit about how allyship plays into the work that that each one of you do um, as practitioners of diversity and equity and inclusion. Allyship is is essential in the work that we do, especially in a school setting. Um, We need our educators and all school staff to serve as allies to um, all of our students, especially those who are part of like marginalized or underrepresented groups. It is our responsibility to make sure that those students do in fact feel included, that they do in fact feel like that they have a place of belonging and that they are genuinely part of the school community. And um, our educators need to serve as, you know, um, 
as, as allies and as advocates to make sure that the students, um, whenever you hear things that might be inappropriate or in, in racism, et cetera, to call it out. Um, to make sure that those things are, are not part of the school community. Um, we can't leave it to just chance that those things will be addressed. We have to address them head on. And so that's what allyship is. It's about calling things out, serving as an advocate, um, and making sure that those uh, individuals who, again, who have been historically marginalized or underrepresented, that they are in fact represented and that they have a voice to make sure that those, to leverage their voices and not necessarily speak on their behalf. I really have been interested in talking a lot about allyship lately and not just as directly what we do with students, but just in everything in my own life, um, with my um, own children, with the people that I'm connected with in my community, um, and then my colleagues. Um, I, it really makes me, when we want to talk about allyship, I always want folks to recognize like what are our privileges? And to be able to speak about those, and sometimes we don't reflect and 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 name those. Um, I was working with my son. I've, I have a senior, um, and I also have an eighth grader. And my eighth grader um, is really heavily engaged in Boy Scouts. And uh, we had a couple of situations with some of the kiddos in the troop, and um, they all have different um, needs. And some of them have very specific. Um, uh, areas that make things difficult for them. And so we talked about, you know, you are very able-bodied. You are able to do these things physically that some other kids aren't able to do. And how can you recognize that? And how can then you make space and grow and learn um, by supporting other others in your troop? So that's what's been on my mind a lot without, with um, when talking about allyship. How would you say that allyship has been impacted by this COVID pandemic and the things that have happened to frustrate diversity and inclusion as a result of COVID-19? I think that uh, the, corona, the novel coronavirus has, has definitely, and this pandemic that we're all going experiencing right now, um, has definitely uh, revealed uh, inequities that exist uh, throughout our systems, um, even more so than before, uh, from food insecurities, housing insecurities, um, lack of access to technology, um, all of those things were really brought to the forefront. Um, and it forced all of us to acknowledge those inequities because they needed to be addressed immediately to ensure that all of our students um, were able to, uh, you know, continue to learn and um, and to not have things, you know, majorly interrupted in their lives. And it was up to the educators, in fact, to do that, to serve as allies, to to make sure because sometimes students don't know what to ask for, right? right. But we 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 are the people who are at the table, and we need to make sure that um, that those things are in fact addressed. That um, our students do have access to food if there are food insecurities, whether it was a temporary situation or something that their family has been dealing with for a long time, again, with technology and, and, and other things. So it really brought those things to the forefront and we needed people to speak up and out about those um, and to make sure that those things were addressed and taken care of. And I think all of that is true in the workplace as well. Um, you know, when you think about most workplaces and when they talk about diversity and inclusion, not only are they trying to cultivate more of an inclusive environment, but we're talking about how we recruit people, how we retrain them, how we promote them, how we make sure they advance. 
And if you think about the fact that none of us comes to work as a different person, right? So whatever impacts us outside of work, we bring that into work. Then all of a sudden you understand that the external things happening in a pandemic are not things that you can separate out from the person. And so you have that element of how your people are doing, right? So that's going to affect their engagement. It's going to affect their productivity. It's going to affect their innovation. Then you add the diversity elements where depending on which socioeconomic group their family comes from or depending on where they live, all of the things that Rakita mentioned are impacting them. And then you add that we're working remotely. So depending on your diversity, depending on what that diversity is, maybe you have a nanny, maybe you don't. Uh, maybe you're supervising kids. You know, the diversity, the impact on women during this pandemic, women who are working, we're seeing a lot of conversation around that and single parents, um, people who are disabled or differently abled. And so you have this huge dynamic where you can't talk about what's going on in your workforce without acknowledging the fact that different people are experiencing this pandemic differently because while we may all be in the same pandemic, we are not all navigating the same pandemic from the same perspective and the same experiences. Uh, you have people in your workforce who are working and the dining table is their office and their kid's classroom and their spouse's office. That's very different than the person who has been able to uh, go to their vacation home in the Hamptons to shelter in place. Now, the other part where diversity and inclusion in the workplace gets impacted is the fact that a lot of the impediments that we have to the advancement of diversity are systemic. They are in how we decide who They are in how we decide who gets opportunities. They are in how we decide who has potential and who's doing a great job. When people are remote, which of course it's only 30% of the population who can do that, well, all of a sudden, that ability to stop by Dana's office, to talk to Dana and build a relationship with her, it's gone. So now affinity bias is going to kick in, and the person who has always had an affinity with Dana is who Dana is going to be thinking about when work opportunities come. If people had a problem giving feedback across differences, now you're out of sight, now you're out of mind, that's going to be exacerbated. Mm -hmm. And as we begin to see organizations look at reductions in force, um, furloughs, a lot of times they're looking at objective data, like hours and productivity. But when you think about the fact that those things are tied to systemic issues, mm -hmm. and if you have bias and cultural fluency issues in your system, now they're magnified with the pandemic, guess who's having lower hours? Guess who's getting less opportunities? Guess who's less visible? It's usually the people of color and women. And in my profession in 2008, what we saw was diversity was decimated. Majority of the people who were impacted by layoffs were women and minorities. And amongst the minorities, specifically black attorneys. And we've only reached our pre-2008 numbers for black attorneys last fall. In our last segment, we also talked about the the system in place that really prevent um, us from dismantling racism on an individual level. But yet there's so much that we want to be able to empower people to do to start chipping away at those systems. So talk to us a little bit about what you see um, 
you know, uh, a way to give people tools, right, and, and, and teachable moments where we can empower individuals to start chipping away at those systems, but also make an impact in their lives? That's a great question. Um, I think looking at those systems, we all have to, to do that. And I think it's starting, like you said, with yourself. You know, what are you involved in? What are you connected with? You know, right now I keep looking at these this amazing group of women and we're all sitting here with a certain level of privilege, right? We're able to sit and have a dialogue about um, race, equity, diversity, inclusion, uh, systematic, you know, systemic racism and things like that. That's a privilege in itself to have that time to be able to reflect on that. So that's one thing that I'm thinking of right now. So understanding that and then looking at ways that in your own life that you can make an impact. Um, today, I keep coming back to my children because I'm home with them right now. And again, that's a privilege to be able to work remotely. Um, but my son went to a Marie Wilkinson food pantry today and, and the dialogue that we were having was his ability to go out and support packed food and deliver that um, to folks who were coming by um, who were needing that and that greater number of people um, who were coming. They've seen an increase in that. So for me and, and, and in those conversations at home is, what small things can you do? How can you change the pieces that you do to make an impact? And then how do you change that system to make more space for others? Do we, why is it that people need to come to a food pantry? What things is our greater community, um, our government, right? Doing to support people. They have to come there because we don't have that uh, established systemically for them in crisis to have their needs met. So again, that's changing that way of thinking um, with a small things within my own home for myself and for my son. I think those of us who, um, again, have like Jen, like Jen Rowe mentioned, um, have the privilege of having positions of power, influence, or authority, it's really up to us to really look at uh, the systems that are directly, directly connected to our workplace um, or whatever it is that we have that power and influence and authority over. And to do audits, like really look to see, you know, where are we missing the mark? Where, 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 are those, where do those inequities um, exist? Um, and once we find them, to actually do something about it, to eradicate them, to change the tide. Um, we have a lot more uh, power and control over making those changes than I think oftentimes we like to give ourselves credit for. So it's really leveraging um, the privilege that um, that some of us do, do in fact have and to use it um, for the, the, the good of everyone, right? Um, and to not sit on it or to think, well, I'm only one person, I can only do so much. It might just be raising the question in a meeting um, or, or looking at a policy practice or procedure and thinking about who does this adversely impact? Who benefits from it? Who does not? Um, asking those types of questions. And then once we, we have those answers, if it's something that's showing that it's in fact inequitable um, or maybe outright racist um, to do something about it. Yeah. And I think part of the conversation, too, that we lean away from often is the role that having courageous and difficult conversations plays in all of this. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes when you're talking about systemic issues, the people in your organization may have no idea that those are systemic issues because the system works for them. Right. Our systems are created around a normative lens that works for someone. Mm -hmm. And it's whoever the system was originally created to benefit. And so 
part of the process is being able to identify where the problem is, like you said, Rakita, and use the privilege or power or influence, like you said, Jennifer, but then also to be able to try to use your voice to get other people on board. And this is where we go back again to the allyship that there are a lot more people who have power and influence that are not part of the process of breaking down the systemic barriers and we have to get them on board. And the only way we can get them on board is about is by educating them what the problem is, how it's showing up and why it's unfair. And a lot of times that's going to bring you up against fundamental premises and paradigms that people have had their entire lives. Mm -hmm. And so it's not an easy process, but it's one that we have to continue doing, whether it's engaging leadership and their commitment, um, truly analyzing the system and identifying where the problems are, and then enacting some sort of system change, which we can't do alone. We have to do it with allies and we have to do it um, with people in power because what we sometimes do is we talk to the choir. We talk to ourselves who already get it, but we can't dismantle the system by ourselves and dismantling systems is very hard. There's a reason why racism is alive and well in the United States of America after hundreds of years. And speaking of the past and looking towards the future, um, you are all parents and with, with children of your own, and you're in such a space, whether you're influencing in the educational system or in, or in the profession of law, um, you are influencing the next generation. So, so what do you say to the influencers, the parents, your peers, um, who don't know how to have courageous conversations when it comes to race? Um, what do we tell our children? What do we tell the next generation, the younger generation of lawyers or professionals out there um, or just people about, about race? How do we empower them? What are some of those additional toolkit items for them um, that we can help arm them with to have a better impact, right? Because the more allies we have, the quicker we can affect change. I think the first thing is to, to be unafraid to have those conversations at home right, um, at your dinner table, as Corey mentioned earlier, uh, to talk about it, to talk about what's happening in the world today and, um, and, and, and find out how their children, depending on the age, how they feel about those situations, what, does, what do they think it means and how does it impact them as well as others, people around them. Um, and so to start having those types of conversation and again, thinking beyond themselves, um, the impact that those situations might have on other people, I think is a great start. I think um, uh, that it's so important to engage in those conversations at home because if not, other people are having those influences um, on, on your children. Um, I keep thinking about how right now with um, white power organizations, they're out there um, engaging with young people and trying to pull them in in different ways. And um, so if we're not having those conversations with our kids and um, sharing with them, then other people will do that for, for us. Uh, so I really like to think of my core values and the things that I see going on around me and that I, I kind of build that um, in all the work that I do with my I have two boys and um, 
one of the things that I've really enjoyed just as a activity to keep us connected together and to continue that dialogue going is um, I have a book club with, with my boys. And so we select different books that we read and then we go to breakfast and have conversations about that. And it's then led into a lot of other activities that we've done together. And I love when they're able to build those connections with things that we are seeing. Um, we watched Ava DuVarnay's um, uh, documentary thir um, 13th the other night. And so my son was then speaking to me about when we read uh, a book called Ghost Boys and then Stamped, which just, um, they have a young adult version out right now. Um, really amazing to see those connections of things that he's been seeing. Um, and so I really encourage parents, don't let other folks um, be able to imprint on your young person, have those conversations and that can start at a very early age. And, and hopefully that's something that lasts through their lifetime. I think the one thing that we can't do when it comes to our children is we can't pass on the failed message of um, color doesn't matter, we don't see color, everybody's the same, because the intent behind that is good in the sense of you're trying to teach your children equality but it's very, very harmful. And so we should be honest with our children. And what I would say to uh, parents of uh, children that are not of color is to educate your children about the kind of circumstances their friends may be in so that they help protect their friends, but also don't put their friends in difficult situations. Because it's one thing for me as a parent of color to tell my girls, here's some things you really can't do, even if your friends can. But it's another thing for my daughter to be with a friend and the friend does something that's going to have very different consequences for my daughter than for her friend. I think that our best friend in this process is curiosity. The more we read, the more we listen, the more we watch. There are lots of TED Talks out there about all kinds of issues on all kinds of diversity. And if we're willing to have a, a curiosity mindset to say, I don't know as much as I think I do, and I'm just going to listen and learn, we will be amazed at what we learn. And I spend all my waking hours thinking about diversity, inclusion, belonging, and I'm learning daily because there's always going to be something that we don't know. I also think as parents, we have to take ownership of unlearning for our children. And I hesitate to say this because they're two educators on, online, but sometimes there are things as a person of color or even for me as an immigrant that I feel like I have to accentuate to unlearn a little bit. You know, like when my daughter was very young and she talked about Columbus Day, guess what? We talked about some other things and we talked about why some states uh, recognize indigenous people's days um, last week, we talked about Ahmad Arbery, mm -hmm. and there are things that they sometimes learn in school that are incomplete, um, that Black History Month doesn't fix, and Asian Heritage Month doesn't fix, and we have to take the ownership of filling in those blanks and helping um, reframe some of what they hear and what they're learning, so... I like that, Corey. And hopefully I didn't get in trouble with the educators for saying no, that. No, I agree. <laughs> I absolutely agree. And I, I do, do want to add, I, I do think another important step for, uh, you know, parents and care, caregivers uh, to do um, is to step outside of our comfort zones. Um, 
and be willing to our, expose ourselves to something different, um, expose our children to different cultures um, and in an authentic way, right? Um, to expand our networks professionally, personally, um, because that's, you know, building authentic relationships with diverse groups of people is the best way to, um, to learn and unlearn um, things that we might have um, learned in the past um, about certain groups of people. So I think that's another um, clear strategy that a parent or a caregiver could do um, in order to serve as an ally. Because you're leading by example, and mm-hmm. I think that that is so well said. It, it, it embodies the curiosity that Corey mentioned. It's about um, the humility of knowing that you may not have all of the answers, and you learn that through your experiences, your shared experiences with other people who don't look like you. Right. And what that does is that it whittles away at some of the fears that people carry in some of their biases. So I think all of that is great. I liked what um, was said earlier about stepping up for others and standing next to others and speaking out um, in anti-racist moments um, when you have the opportunity to educate, to enlighten, um, to protect, because that's the best way. When we are looking out for each other, that's the best way that that we can fight um, back at racism and, and really make this world a place that is conscious, that is caring, and that is kind. And I love what what Jennifer had talked about with respect to having conversations now with your kids, um, because you've got plenty of time to do that. And you may be incredibly busy during this pandemic and during this time, in addition to being stressed and anxious. But what better time? People are eating dinner together more. They're home together more. They're just around each other more. So it's a perfect fodder for just incredible, courageous conversations um, to arm ourselves and protect ourselves with an aspect of love and kindness that we can exude when we are more free and more better able to move around um, our country and, and this world. So I just wanna thank you ladies for joining us for this episode. And uh, I just appreciate all, all that you've contributed to the discussion. Rebecca? I love that we're ending on um, such a positive and empowering note. I think whenever we talk about race, um, and again, things like systems of racism, we have a tendency to feel a little beat down, a little like it feels hopeless sometimes, um, or maybe all of the time. And um, giving us an opportunity to talk through some things, some tools that we can all use. Um, and whether that's, again, teaching our children, teaching our colleagues, um, or teaching ourselves, um, those words of self-discovery, of curiosity, of unlearning, those concepts, those ideas are things that right in this very moment, we can start to set those wheels in motion and see uh, a lasting impact on ourselves. Um, you know, that great quote by Maya Angelou, Dr. Maya Angelou is, uh, you know, when you, you know better, you do better. Um, right. And I, and I really truly believe that's the case. Um, but putting the onus on ourselves again, to, um, self-educate, to unlearn, and to be curious. Um, those are values. Those are, it's a mission statement that we could carry with us into the future um, and take that on our own individual journey. I think that's another takeaway I've gotten today is that we're, everybody is on their own individual journey of anti-racism and people are kind of jumping on 
at different points in time. Uh, Corey, I love that you said that you eat, sleep, and breathe this work, and you're still learning. And while that could feel daunting to somebody who's at the beginning of their journey, I think similarly, it lets us know that there's so much out there that we can take advantage of. Uh, there's so much learning to be done. There's so many resources out there. Um, and it's, it's really wonderful that we had so many guests on today who were able to share that expertise and that knowledge with us. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the first episode of Finding Common Ground. We hope this conversation has challenged you to see other perspectives and have an appreciation for experiences that are different from your own. We believe we can change things in our society when people care enough to change them. And people can change when they care to. See you next time.